Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, September 5th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. How do you tell a good drug company from a mediocre one? Our colleague Matt Herper joins us to talk about existentialism in big pharma. Next up, we'll talk about how I spent my Labor Day weekend with a bunch of biohackers at their annual conference in Las Vegas. It was weird. Then we'll bring you Rebecca's interview from that conference with Anastasia Sin. She's a magician cyborg who has 28 magnets and microchips implanted in her body, and some really interesting ideas about enhancing her experience of the world with technology. Magician cyborg, who would have guessed? Lastly, we'll bring you another extremely popular lightning round. This week, we dish out burning hot takes on the selection of the next FDA commissioner, big changes for a Theranos-slaying journalist, and the strange tale of a cartoon-copying CEO. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. How do you differentiate a good pharmaceutical company from a mediocre one? It sounds like a simple question because drug companies exist to make drugs, but actually measuring the value of what they do is a lot trickier than you might think. Not all drugs are created equal. With all that in mind, our colleague Matt Harper took a look at Pfizer, perhaps the most famous pharma company in the universe, and its 10-year quest to get better at making drugs. And he joins us now to talk about his story. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Matt, to set the stage for us a little, in generations past, old companies like Pfizer and Merck basically seemed to employ all of the scientists and invent all of the drugs. How did we get to this point now where they're having to rethink their approach to pharmaceuticals? Well, there was always a little more of a mix than that. And, you know, around the same time I was born, biotech happened. Um, Now we're in a situation where there are a lot of small companies trying to invent drugs and a lot of universities trying to invent drugs and large drug companies can't just hoover them all up. So they're in a situation of doing a lot of business development. But as we've seen with companies that have tried not to invent their own drugs and just in license, being able to do it internally turns out to still be very important. So what made you want to write about Pfizer in particular? Well, as Adam said, they are kind of synonymous with big drug companies. And they're a company that I've followed very closely for a long time. Also, Michael Dolston, who is the head of R&D there, has actually been the head of R&D for a long time. He's been running R&D basically since Pfizer bought Wyeth back in 2009. So you actually kind of had this long runway. And that means you have data to look at to try and figure out what's going on. So Matt, one thing you explore uh, in your story is that it's difficult to discern whether one drug company is better at its job than another. Why is that? Well, the most important thing to succeeding at a drug company is to have one really great drug. And the problem is there's a lot of luck in that, that you happen to get the drug of an age, a Lipitor or right now a Keytruda at Merck. The other thing you can do is look at how many drugs are approved, but then you start trying to have to figure out whether those drugs actually mattered. So 
there are a lot of data points that you can look at and they're all good, but it's hard to kind of get a single metric that captures how well a company is doing. So getting back to Pfizer, Dolston returns often to the idea that developing drugs is a lot like chess, requires attention to an opening, a middle game, and an end game. Matt, to what extent do you buy that analogy? I think it's as good an analogy for drug development as anything. It's agonizing, like chess can be. It can take a very long time, like chess games can. I do think that chess doesn't capture the random element of drug development. You're not playing against an opponent necessarily so much as against biology, which is why we get so many instances where it seems more like poker. But I think as analogies go, it's pretty good. So as we mentioned, your story makes clear how things have changed for companies like Pfizer across Big Pharma over the last 10 years. What do you think the world's biggest drug makers will look like 10 years from now? Well, one thing that I thought was most interesting is that Pfizer is no longer the world's biggest drug maker. They are smaller in market cap than Novartis, and they will have $28 billion in sales will have been divested through various moves, including the deal they're doing with Mylan to get rid of old generics like Lipitor and Norvask, which are still actually blockbusters, even though they're generic, because in parts of the world they sell. So I think that a lot of them, there is kind of a right size, and companies seem to shrink down to it after they get big. I think the biggest question for all pharmaceutical companies is what the pricing world looks like in the future and what drugs are paid for. A lot of the pivot to rare disease and cancer is the result of the fact that those drugs are expensive and it really pays to be in those markets. I think one of the interesting things you bring up in your story, again, is this idea that kind of Pfizer is kind of, I don't know if retreating is the right word, but kind of getting away from developing medicines for like millions and millions of people and instead is focused more on you know, on sort of rare diseases, you know, highly targeted medicines. Is that, what's, what's the tension between those two things like within pharma and within Pfizer? Well, I think for Pfizer, it's really interesting because it's true that they're interested in these rare disease markets. I mean, they're developing a gene therapy for Duchenne. But I also think that there's a tension within Pfizer that they don't kind of want it to get too small. And I think Ibrantz, their breast cancer drug, is kind of the ideal big pharma niche drug. Maybe it's a slightly smaller market, but this is still a $4 billion drug. Breast cancer is still a big market, right? So I think that they're always trying to find that spot. But the whole industry made a big shift to what we used to call specialty and oncology over the past couple decades. And, you know, Adam, you and I both remember when it was controversial for cancer drugs, not only for them to cost $100,000 per course of treatment, but remember when it was controversial for them to be $50,000? Now they're one hundred and fifty. dollars So that's obviously kind of a nice market to be in as long as that lasts. One thing that kind of stuck in my mind just now, Matt, at the beginning of this conversation is, as you mentioned, the differentiation between pharma like Pfizer and the rise of biotech a few decades ago in the form of Genentech and Biogen and others. But then, as you mentioned, companies like Pfizer are, quote unquote, right sizing themselves and getting rid of things like animal health and generics in order to simply focus on inventing drugs. And so my curiosity is, will the distinctions pharma and biotech seem quaint or even obsolete? in the near future as Pfizer just comes to look like a biogen with a different mission? A few distinctions have really held up. Big pharmaceutical companies still employ a lot more people. They still have a lot more manufacturing. They still have a lot more 
legacy drugs that they're responsible for from a safety perspective, which is something that the biotechs don't have to deal with, the side effects for your old drugs and reporting those to the FDA. But you do get to a point where what's really the big difference between an Amgen and Eli Lilly, right? They do start to just become drug companies when they all kind of reach a certain size. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you later in this episode for the lightning round. All right. Thank you, guys. Next up, we're going to talk about biohackers. So you might think of biohackers as an anti-establishment bunch, but as it turns out, they, like any other professional group, put on conferences too, whether gathering for panel discussions, metaphorical fireside chats, or happy hour cocktails. And they just had a big conference in Las Vegas this past weekend, and Rebecca was there to cover it. I was. It was called Biohack the Planet, and there were about 150 biohackers there. And it was an adventure. I have to say, it was such a breath of fresh air compared to all of the normal scientific and medical conferences where everyone was on script and required to be boring. No one is ever going to say anything interesting at a panel discussion at bio. So Rebecca, I assume there were more tattoos and piercings at this conference than you would normally see at a medical conference? Yes, I felt a little overdressed just wearing like normal business attire. (laughs) So Rebecca, we've all seen the headlines about biohackers injecting themselves with CRISPR or an untested gene therapy or, you know, some experimental herpes treatment. So did anybody get CRISPR'd on stage at this conference? You know, no one injected themselves on stage, but there were implantations of magnets under the skin. So this was at one of the vendor booths. And during the happy hour, some of the attendees were getting magnets with a syringe implanted under the skin of their hand. It was pretty wild. I talked to one attendee who said he got one of these magnets for $139. He was hoping to be able to use it to conduct parlor tricks by, you know, picking up metal objects. And he said he was also hopeful he might be able to feel electromagnetic fields, kind of like an extra sense. So beyond getting magnet implantations at the bar, what did the biohackers talk about all weekend? Yeah, so I think biohackers are pretty well known for this kind of rage against the machine attitude. And there was plenty of that, definitely. But I also thought there was an interesting conversation around kind of the need to grow up a little bit. So there were some interesting changes. Uh, For the first time, um, now in the fourth year of this conference, they had a hall of scientific posters and vendor booths, which is pretty normal, pretty, pretty mainstream. And on stage, there was a lot of conversation about whether they should publish in journals, establish their own peer review system, have conversations with the FDA. There was even one discussion about whether they should create a board of biohackers that would be like IRBs, the institutional review boards that sign off on normal studies. So Rebecca, IRBs, poster sessions, vendor booths, I mean, this seems all very sort of mainstream and normal. So Is there a tension between that and kind of the sort of the radical ethos that this movement began with? Yeah, that was exactly the tension that I found really fascinating. You know, there was sort of a lot of uncertainty about what these sort of baby steps towards normalization would mean for a community that exists. Its definition is being in opposition to things like that. 
Regular listeners of this podcast remember Josiah Zayner, who was a guest of ours a few months ago. And there was one point where a member of the audience asked about a publication system that would involve peer review from within the biohacker community. And Zayner answered that question up on stage uh, with some ambivalence. You know, he was saying that if you build the system that you're trying to break out of, why are you trying to break out of that system in the first place? So while you were at the conference, you also sat down to interview a cyborg magician? I did. So let me set the stage for you. So the whole conference had been pretty straightforward panel discussions where people just got up on stage and talked. But that was not the case for one of the speakers, Anastasia Sin. Anastasia got up in front of the crowd of biohackers, and she performed a magic act that involved threading a giant needle into her arm. While Frank Sinatra was crooning, I've got you under my skin over the loudspeakers. Besides sort of the the entertainment value of her performance, was there sort of a scientific point to be made here? Yeah, so Anastasia Sin is a biohacker, and she has several dozen microchips and magnets implanted throughout her body that she uses to enhance the way she experiences and interacts with the world. And unlike many people who are experimenting sort of just out of personal interest, she's doing this explicitly as part of her career as a magician. So these days, she's doing less performing on stage and spending more time designing bodily implants for other magicians. She was quite the character, and I really enjoyed her perspective. So let's listen in on that interview now. So I'll start recording whenever you're ready. I'm ready. Okay. Anastasia, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. So you're often described in interviews as a cyborg. What does that mean to you? To me, a cyborg is anyone that wants to add technology or anything that isn't already in their body to their body to achieve a new sense or a new ability. So you have a total of 26 bodily implants that includes microchips and magnets, and you're getting a 27th one this afternoon. Yes, and a 28th tomorrow. What do you use these implants to do? Uh, Well, I'm a magician, so I use them in my magic act, and I also use them in my day-to-day life to unlock my door at home or to let my cat speak. I know it sounds crazy, but my cat's upgraded even, so I can scan him and he will tell his story about how I found him behind a grocery store. I love my cat. And um, yeah, other than that, I mean, I can't go into too much detail about how the implants are used in magic, but there's multiple ways that they can be used and even more ways they can be designed to be used. And what's an example? The computer that I want to put in my leg, for example, that we're working on right now will actually have an NFC and a Wi-Fi and a Bluetooth. It'll be able to read something by NFC, transfer it to my phone with Wi-Fi, transfer it to my hairpiece with Bluetooth, and then vibrate the magnet in my ear so I can receive secret information that no one else can hear. And I'm not wearing any kind of a headset so people can inspect my ears. The magnets are great for doing any kind of coin manipulations or anything that I can put um, magnetic material in can be held by my magnets. And what does NFC stand for, for listeners who are unfamiliar? NFC is near field communication. And uh, most Android phones have it built in. The new iPhone 10 has it. And a lot of hotels that you hold your card in front of or even the bank machine use the NFC technology. Are you using implants in any way to monitor your health? I have one temperature chip under my arm. So I guess you could say that was a health monitor. It's not Hugely accurate. I think that if I were to choose again where to install it, I would put it directly in my armpit where it could get a real legitimate reading. As far as other things, I would like to get my Spire, which is a machine that you can buy on the market from Amazon, for example, and have it coded and implanted in my chest because it actually monitors my stress and my breathing and texts me and says, hey, Anna, you're really stressed out. Chill. 
and then runs you through a breathing exercise. So I'd really like to have that become part of me because I feel like it's my best friend sometimes. Let's talk about precautions you're taking as a result of having these implants in your body. So you'd mentioned that you get your liver and kidneys checked every three months. Tell me more. Well, the things that we're coating my implants in are not medically sanctioned. They're, it's not even like the silicone stuff that body modification people use just for decoration. It's actually something that's been in the medical field already, but not for this use. So we are using data sheets to make educated judgments on whether or not something should be used and following up with liver and kidney tests to make sure there's no toxicity escaping into the body. And the thing you'd be monitoring, right, is your white blood cell count. One thing, I mean, also, if you have any kind of renal failure, then obviously there's going to be there's a problem. <laughs> so for all anything, any changes. So you said that you've put most of your implants in yourself. What is that like? I've put about a little more than half of them in myself. The microchips are really easy to do. They come in a pre-sterilized assembly. You pop them in. And as long as you watch a quick five-minute YouTube video, I'm pretty sure anybody can do it. The ones that need to be scalpeled in, the larger magnets, I get my friend Cassix to do. And he's an ER nurse, and he's quite skilled with a scalpel. So I have no problems doing that. I mean, I have a high pain tolerance. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have a problem with it. Some people might. So I'm sure you get this question all the time. What is it like going through TSA at the airport? I actually have no problem with TSA whatsoever. The first time I went through, I showed them my implants and I said, is this going to set off any detectors? And I was really kind of proud and wanted to show them off. And they said, I don't know. Why don't we try it? And I went through the magnet detector, nothing. Went through the other one, nothing. And since then, even the wands haven't been getting me when I go into shows. So this past spring, you testified before the Nevada State Legislature against a bill that sought to ban coercive microchips. But you and other critics worried that the bill went too far. What made you concerned? The fact that it wasn't just banning coercive microchipping. It wasn't it originally was introduced as that bill, but then it was sneakily changed into voluntary microchipping also being banned. And considering I already have 26, I saw a problem with that. I'm not a criminal and I don't want to be made one because people who don't understand the technology are legislating it. So as a reporter, you know, I hear a lot of concern around privacy and the risk of hacking when it comes to bodily implants like the ones that you have. How do you think about those concerns in your own life? Honestly, the concerns that I have with my implants are pretty much nil, but I know that there's the concern mainly with anything that's battery powered. That's what we're all trying to fix and what we're all worried about because batteries outgas and lithium is poisonous to the human body and it tends to explode and catch fire and nobody wants that under their skin. So for me, that's a big problem. I mean, ethically, as far as things, people working on CRISPR, I don't know enough about the scientific side of it to really have a say in there, but I do love what my friends are doing. It's very interesting work, so I can say that. Anastasia, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. And we're back with another lightning round and joining us is Matt Herper. So first up, we're going to talk about the escalating speculation around the next FDA commissioner. Right. So former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb handpicked his successor in the form of Ned Sharpless before he stepped down earlier this year. And Sharpless is now doing that job in an interim capacity. This week, however, we learned that the Trump administration apparently isn't ready to just rubber stamp Sharpless for a permanent position. So it sounds like there's basically three contenders for the job right now. There's Ned Sharpless. There's a MD Anderson radiation oncologist, Stephen Hahn, according to reporting from the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday. And then there's Alexa Bohr Kimball, a Harvard dermatology professor. So going back to when 
Scott was retiring or Scott was leaving FDA and named Ned, I think we all kind of took it for granted that Ned Sharpless would be our new permanent FDA commissioner. So what does it mean that apparently HHS you know, isn't taking Scott's word as gospel. I think it's really surprising, given everything that's happening in the world that the Trump administration has to worry about. But it also means that they care about the FDA more than most presidential administrations have. Usually, I mean, we've gone long periods of time without a commissioner. And so it's it's really interesting that they're not just going with the obvious choice and keeping Sharpless, who I think could probably get confirmed in a hot minute. And I think it's noteworthy also that Scott Gottlieb has endorsed uh, Ned Sharpless. He wants him to be named the permanent FDA commissioner, as have, I think, three or four other former FDA commissioners who wrote a letter to HHS basically saying Ned Sharpless should get the job. So if he doesn't get the job and the Trump administration ends up picking one of these other two candidates or somebody else, it's going to be a little bit odd. It might worry some pharma investors. So next up, Rebecca, we're going to talk about a career change for John Carreyrou. Yeah, so John Carreyrou, as listeners of this podcast know, uh, is the Wall Street Journal reporter behind the deep investigative reporting into the huge mess that is Theranos. He also wrote a very successful book, Bad Blood, about the saga. And the Daily Beast recently reported that Carreyrou is leaving the Wall Street Journal. He had been there 20 years. And the reason was in part because of the journal's policy prohibiting paid speaking engagements. So basically, John is making a lot of money going around the country speaking about Theranos, and he can't do that and work at the Wall Street Journal at the same time. I think it's great for John. I mean, I, you know, if anyone should profit from the Theranos disaster, it is John. I think he should raise his rates, whatever they are. I think he should raise his speaking fees by 30%. So the other day, the Boston Globe ran a feel-good story about a biotech CEO who doubles as a cartoonist caricaturing the industry. But that story took a very strange and unexpected turn this week. Damien, explain. Yes. So after that story ran, chronicling Pravin Tepreneni, the CEO of Morphic Therapeutic, and the whimsical cartoons that he draws, Boston Globe reporter Jonathan Saltzman, who had written the story, got a note from a reader who found one of the cartoons that accompanied the story very, very familiar. And it turned out that that cartoon was very similar, if not conceptually identical, to one that this reader had clipped out of the New Yorker magazine in the 1980s. And so Saltzman did, I suppose, what any reporter would do, and he revisited the issue, called up Tipperneni, and wrote a story that was actually kind of cringing and painful for me to read, not because of Saltzman's writing, but because of the subject matter here, in which Tipperneni kind of has to come clean and say, yeah, you know, maybe that one stuck in my mind, and, and all these years later, I unwittingly plagiarized it. Yeah, my thought immediately on hearing about this was like, you know, can't we have nice things? Here's this nice story about a biotech CEO who is a cute cartoonist. And then we find out that he actually plagiarized one of the cartoons. It is cringy and embarrassing. And this the whole thing makes you want to like just crawl back into bed. Adam, you've been covering biotech long enough to know that we cannot have nice things. <laughs> I will say also that the original story really does not age well upon this additional information. There's one line from uh, the CEO in which he says that the hardest part of cartooning is not drawing. Rather, it's coming up with a clever idea. Ouch.
does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinato, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this episode, what you didn't like, and which kind of cyborgs we should have on the podcast in the future. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please tell friends about the podcast. You can also leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.